This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today we'll talk with Sam Wasson about Fosse, his biography of the legendary choreographer and dancer. And then PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan will tell us about some other books about books. Fantastic. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. So no surprise on the fiction list. Uh, the late Tom Clancy is at number one uh, with Command Authority, which he co-wrote with Mark Greeny. And I don't know the extent to which Clancy worked on this before his death in October, uh, but I expect, given the, the publishing timing, it was nearly finished. Um, Oddly enough, I I was looking the book up on Amazon and they still have a present tense biography for him, Mm. which is a little awkward. (laughs) Uh, But uh, regardless, living or dead, he managed to sell 75,000 copies nearly um, of of this book. It's also number three on our audiobook bestseller list for this week. Uh, And he's got a mass market title also on the bestseller list, um, which is... uh, Presumably, his uh, his previous book now released in mass market, uh, which Threat Factor. Um, so that's mm-hmm. number three in mass market. So his name is all over there. Um, perhaps for the last time, though. I suppose we don't know whether any other books were in the works. Right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And uh, with nonfiction, uh, in our entire top, say, thirty list of books, we have one one new title. Wow. And uh, that is The Daniel Plan, 40 Days to a Healthier Life by Rick Warren. Uh, Rick Warren uh, founded Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. Um, And it's an evangelical congregation, about 25,000 attendees, uh, weekly attendees. And he is the author of The Purpose Driven Life um, and uh, was a bestseller as are several others of the there's a whole series of purpose driven and this one the daniel plan is also um one of others in in similarly titled series and uh, so this lands at number 12 on our nonfiction bestseller list for uh last week yeah it, it is a slow time of year even on the trade paperback list um the the major new title is all the way down at number 10 um which is gabriel's redemption by sylvain renard and that's uh, the third in an erotic romance trilogy mm, right um, but that i'm again at the first nine books are all the same books that have been on right. there for quite some time. So uh, we're we're seeing, I feel like, a slow start to the holiday season, or maybe it's just that the the big holiday books already came out, and right. so they're just staying big. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's take a moment to observe our first anniversary of the PW Radio Show. It's it's really exciting. I think it might actually even have been last week that was a year since we interviewed mm-hmm. Eloisa James for for episode number oh, one. Right, right. Um, but uh, it's this is it's super exciting. Yeah. I can't believe we've been doing this a whole year. 
I know. It's been a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, we've just interviewed the most extraordinary roster of authors and people interviewed in, in the book world, people involved in the book world. So um, it, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to continuing with it. Oh, me too. We've had some great conversations. So, so here's I'm, to 2014. Here's to 2014, <laughs> indeed. And I want to thank everybody who's been tuning in for a year uh, with, you know, with our show one, one way or another however right. you access it um, thank you very much because we're we're here doing this for you our audience and it's uh, it's always a pleasure well Rose I look forward to next year so yep. I'm Mark Rotella and I'm Rose Fox and this is Publishers Weekly Radio year two and counting <laughs> next up Sam Watson will tell us how he chronicled Bob Fosse's professional and personal lives we'll be right back Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Sam Wasson on the line. He's the author of Fosse, an immense biography of dancer and choreographer Bob Fosse. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So I have to ask, what first drew you to Bob Fosse? Uh, well, um, I guess that moment of uh, the, I, I, well, I guess it was seeing all that jazz for the first time in film school about 10 or 15 years ago, and I was just overwhelmed by the talent, uh, obviously. Um, and then in the course of wanting to learn more and seeing more Fosse, I found that um, the, the biographical writing was not really complete and didn't really match the sense of the guy that I had accumulated from, you know, just informal conversations with people that I had had before I even decided I wanted to be his biographer. So um, it was a slow, a slow and profound falling in love. And so, so it was after seeing the movie and, but what, what was it about him that, that felt that his life was rich enough for you to, to, to dive right into it? Well, I mean, the movie was the movie made things gave me a great start because you see right there what a fascinating personality you're dealing with. On top of the genius uh, that he was as an artist, um, I knew that writing about Fosse would be fascinating because here you have this person with an unbelievable drive, um, unbelievable darkness, um, uh, and 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 tremendous charisma. Um, uh, and and that as a character is is fascinating in and of itself, independent of um, the talent. So it was kind of a two for one deal, maybe even three for one, because um, uh, the all this material was available. People were still alive, and um, the the Library of Con Fossey's archives of the Library of Congress had been virtually untouched. Um, so it was just like this delicious, ripe grapefruit hanging off of a tree that was almost like waiting for me to pluck it. Now, I, I, I know that you write a lot about movies and you're, you, know, you went to film school. Now, how much of, a, a, of, of his dancing uh, career drew you to him? I mean, did you have any interest in dance before this? No, no, not really. Um, I, I had to, uh, I was a total dance virgin and still consider myself to be basically a dance virgin. Um, um, 
but uh, you know, no biographer. The talent of Fosse's talent was so enormous um, that really no biographer could be an expert in every department. And um, I, I, I hope I hope that doesn't show in the book. Our reviewer didn't think so. so. Okay, good. <laughs> As you know, we gave it a star in the in the uh, in our review of Peter. I know. I was so relieved and delighted because, of course, you feel you always feel like um, it, people aren't going to get it, and 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 in fact, that's another reason that drew me to Fosse. You know, this unbelievable feeling of insecurity that he was always fooling them and that he was never good at something, but that I relate to not on the to the profound degree that he felt it obviously um uh I'm not a depressive and certainly not um self-destructive um but that feeling that I think all creative people feel maybe all people feel period of it's never it's never good enough why why can't I be better and here you have this guy who is the best the absolute best, and still he felt that. So I related to that personally, and I also felt, you know, I feel, I find it very moving and even universal. So how do you write about the dance um, when when you're writing for this audience of, presumably of lay people. I mean, we might know a little bit about Fosse and his choreography and and the idea of him as a person, but how do you convey that, um, and especially something so visual? How do you write about that in text? Well, I I can, I, I guess being so dance naive helped in that sense because i didn't i don't have any jargon or any kind of technical savvy that would get in the way between me and the layperson because as far as dance goes i am a layperson so i was just showing you exactly what i saw on screen and and hopefully trying to imbue it with a little bit of the spirit a little bit of the enthusiasm that i myself felt for the material and that i think fossey put into the work so my hope was that if i wrote about dance emotionally um as Fosse choreographed emotionally, um, then then maybe there could be some point of contact, and I could really give you the feeling of of of, of watching this dance, that that visceral experience. So, if I if I succeeded in being honest with my reaction to the dance, then then maybe a little bit of that feeling exists on the page. That was my hope, at least. And I'm sure it helped that you were able to talk with a lot of people who worked with him. You mentioned how great it was to be able to write a biography of someone while so many people who knew him were still alive. And you were definitely able to interview a lot of folks who might have been reluctant to talk with you. How did you go about that? Well, uh, that was a real, that was, that's a, that was a huge challenge, especially because when you're dealing with Fosse, as we know from all that jazz, I mean, it's no secret that he did, he was an amphetamine addict and um, slept with a lot of women. So um, I had to really, hopefully, convince people, show people that 
I, I, I wasn't really in this for the salacious and the dishy, um, which isn't to say that the book doesn't have those elements. They're a huge part of who Fosse was. So I had to strike this balance um, in, in presenting myself to people, and, I, and I, I was so relieved to find out that people did feel that I was genuinely in love with Fosse, people who did know him, enough to open up to me and, and by and large, answer every single question that I had. Um, and I, I know for a fact the book would not be as intimate as it, as it is if I didn't have people like Anne Reinking, um, who was Fosse's you know, lover for about seven years, um, being so incredibly candid. I don't think many biographers have that, that privilege. Um, and, and because Bob was with so many women, he left such a historical record of intimacy. I don't just mean sexually, but just what he was in his tenderest, most vulnerable moments. Um, um, that's information that, that really only our lovers have. And because Bob had so many lovers, um, I, I, I'm so glad as the biographer because I, I could go that much deeper. Sure. And, and, and from a, you know, kind of a nuts and bolts question, uh, as you were you know, doing the research, you put this into a proposal. I'm assuming there was a proposal. Right. Uh, at what point did you know that you had enough people to, to access in order to write this? Um, you never really know um, at that point, because when you're writing the proposal, um, you just have a start. You just have a flavor. You haven't done all your research. You haven't made all your phone calls. Um, you just have enough to know that you have the makings of an interesting book, and you keep your fingers crossed that that you can open more doors along the way. Um, so my fingers were crossed for about three years, um, <laughs> and and uh, I was I was just absolutely. I mean, I I can't. I don't know any other word for it other than blessed because it was sort of out of my control that 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 um, Fosse's people really understood where I was coming from um, and helped me. Um, like I said, there was no book without them. So what were some of the surprising things you learned from them about Fosse that you wouldn't have known from reading his archives or watching his films? Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the whole book, I, well, I mean, that, <laughs> that's such a huge question. Um, oh, just, just give us a, a sampler. Give us a teaser or two. Well, I, I began the book thinking that Fosse was uh, verbatim the man that he presented himself to be in all that jazz. Um, and while that movie is uh, shockingly uh, um, honest, um, it's not the whole man. I mean, the, 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 the real Bob Fosse, um, though he had many of those tendencies, many of what we, much of what we see in the movie, was so much more, um, so much more vulnerable, so much more frightened, um, than, than the, the version that we see in the movie. I had no idea, and it was only in the course of talking to people that I really found out that aside from being, you know, a, uh, difficult and um, tough and all the things creative people are, especially in the performing arts, um, he really was... Um, he really was uh, a, a little boy, a little boy inside, um, and and felt that his own worthlessness uh, he never got a foot a foothold on. 
And your previous book, uh, Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m., was uh, was about uh, Audrey Hepburn, about the movie, um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And this one seems to be a, a much more heavily researched book than your previous. How was it different writing this book than, say, the last book? Well, I, they were both heavily researched, um, but Fosse's a bigger subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, is is only one movie made over the course of a year. Um, Bob Fosse lived for 60 years. Um, so um, the research wasn't any different. It was just, it was just, there was just more to, more to learn. Sure. And w- now, were there any similar- similarities, say, in, in themes uh, for you between the subjects of your three books, Audrey Hepburn, Blake Edwards, and Bob Fosse? Well, I also have a book about the filmmaker Paul Mazursky. Mm. Um, um, I, well, I, I'd say they, they, all, they all change the way we watch movies. Um, and um, I think at their best moments, um, pushed push the envelope um, on, on, on what it means to be um, a human being. Uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, I, I believe, changed the way we look at sex in the movies. Um, I believe Paul Mazursky changed the way we look at love in the movies. Um, and uh, I, I, I certainly know um, Blake Edwards refined the slapstick comedy um, sophisticated it, made it contemporary, and Bob Fosse changed the musical at least twice. So on, on top of being great, great artists uh, with, with, uh, with canny senses of how we live, um, they changed the medium. And so you, you really got more of a sense of Broadway with, with Fosse than you had maybe with the other uh, subjects of your other books. Um, what, what really jumped out at you, the similarities and the differences between Hollywood and Broadway? The, the similarities and differences. Um, it's, that's, a, that's, a huge, that's a huge question. Um, could you be more specific? I'm thinking you, I personally grew up um, going to see you know, I, I saw 42nd Street on 42nd Street. For me, um, you know, Broadway came first and the movies came later, um, but it sounds more like for your biogra- biographical career here, um, Hollywood kind of came first and then Broadway came later. And um, so I was just wondering what it's like to approach Broadway with, with so much knowledge of Hollywood already, so much understanding of how creative professionals and performing professionals work together, but this whole different pressure that comes when it's live theater. Did, did, that, did anything about that sort of jump out at you as you were trying to understand Fosse and his relationship to the people he worked with? Well, dancers are a special case of performer, uh, and uh, um, you, that you, you don't have that in Hollywood to the same degree. I mean, you might have in the 50s when the musical comedy, when the musical was healthy, but, but right now where there's really no infrastructure for the musical in Hollywood, um, the, da- the Broadway dancer remains its own breed with, with, with um, uh, um, a, a touchingly short life um um you know a, a great dancer has his or her peak for a second and they have their moment and then they're gone so young and um that really that really moves me um especially in the context of Fosse who was a guy so keenly aware of his own um 
his own his his own proximity to death. To add to that, um, the dancer's innate um, um, mortality um, was was doubly poignant. Um, and and so yes, in Hollywood you don't really have that. Um, you know, um, actors can go on to have long careers. Um, not all of them, but no dancer, no matter how successful, can have a long dancing career. And um, you have a pretty stunning book trailer for this book, and I would like to, I mean, again, it's hard to put something visual into words, and I hope most of our listeners will will go off and hunt it down, Uh, but it's such a visual topic. Did that make it easier or in some ways harder to do a trailer, a, a video trailer for this book? Well, it made it, it made it a lot easier because my friend Max Goldblatt, who was the director and edited it, um, is such a good filmmaker and such a naturally funny guy and so understands the world of Fosse that when it came to making this homage, um, he had such a, an, an, an automatic um, understanding of Fosse's style that 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 paying it a tribute was second nature um and uh and and not to mention a lot of fun so um yes uh what 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 existed what fossey style made it i mean was just like <laughs> made it so fun uh, so fun for us and i i know you're still doing publicity for this book but but i have to ask do you have a, another subject in mind for your next book I've got a few ideas. Um, I'm, I'm working on a script now, um, but um, there are some ideas brewing for the next book. Nothing, nothing I'm ready to, uh, <laughs> to disclose just yet. Sure. Well, we've been talking with Sam Wasson. You can find his book, Fosse, in stores right now. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan tells us about some more biographies to keep an eye out for, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan is here to tell us about upcoming books for book lovers. Jasmine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, we we had been just talking with Sam Wasson about his biography of uh, Bob Fosse, and you have some other biographies, or at least one other biography, that's uh, coming down the pike that you thought might interest our fans of books. So tell us tell us what you got. So as I was preparing to come on the show, I was looking at November and December books, but actually the books that I'm really excited about are all coming out in January. So Great. looking ahead, um, one of the major titles we've seen is Call Me Burroughs by Barry Miles. He is um, William Burroughs' former editor and the author of a biography called Jack Kerouac, King of the Beats. So this... Great. This is a pretty hefty book, which we gave a starred review to. It's coming out from 12 in January. Um, we called it a raucous biography and wonderfully readable and entertaining, and said yeah, that so Burroughs emerges as his own greatest character. Um, for people who think of literary biographies as, as very dry, this is probably on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, as our reviewer noted, the, the contents are certainly going to be colorful. There's discussion of Burroughs's avid sexual interest in teenage boys, his use of all manner of drugs, um, petty crimes, drug dealing, his love of casual gunplay, including 
the very unfortunate episode in which he fatally shot his wife during a game of William Tell. Wow. I think that's what most people who aren't big fans of the Beats know him for, actually. I had somehow never heard that. That's something. Well, to to inform you of something about literature means that I've like really achieved something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know no, almost nothing about nonfiction, but that's why I'm always so glad to have you here telling us uh, about upcoming nonfiction titles. Yes. Yeah, so so Burroughs was interested in in all manner of strange things, including Scientology and UFO abductions. He had theories about giant intergalactic insects that control everything, and from what I remember of reading his books, it really is like being dropped into a vat of craziness. <laughs> and of course, teenagers and college students think he's the coolest guy ever because you can't understand it. And people love that about his novels because the stranger it is, the, the more insider his cachet is. And I think this book will do a lot to demystify some of the crazier stories and also create um, a whole new set of crazy stories and the it's not just the main subject that's so interesting in this book but the the world that Burroughs traveled in and our reviewer was thought it was worth mentioning that there's plenty of contributions here from the author's equally colorful circle of acquaintances who were forever doing interesting things like getting mauled by lions <laughs> interesting yes that's how I describe that so I really think that this biography will make a splash it's it's got a sensational subject who led a very, very colorful life and is written with a lot of wit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, exactly. And when I was uh, much younger, I was really big into The Beats and Red Naked Lunch uh, and, and several of his other books as well as all The Beats, too. So this sounds very good. And uh, speaking of giant intergalactic insects and UFOs, um, you've got a book there that's not science fiction itself, but is about science fiction. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. For science fiction fans, um, one exciting nonfiction title is What Makes This Book So Great by the novelist Joe Walton. It's coming out from Tor in January. This is another starred review, and the book gathers 130 of Walton's blog posts from 2008 to 2011 from the science fiction site Tor.com, which perhaps you can yeah, um, Tor say something about. Tor.com is, uh, it's basically an online magazine. There's fiction, there's reviews, uh, you, you get people doing literary criticism like Walton, you get people talking about science fiction films and television. It's basically a, a sort of homepage for all things science fiction fantasy. And um, it's, it's very well regarded and certainly one of the big draws is uh, Walton's considerate and, and really thoughtful posts about various books that she's read. And uh, I got a chance to interview her for a couple of years ago when she was up for a Nebula Award, uh, which she won entirely to her surprise. <laughs> and, um, and, and she's just a really interesting thoughtful person. I keep using that word, but it's 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 a good word for her. She she takes a, an analytical approach, but also a very affectionate approach. You can tell she really loves speculative fiction. And so calling her book, What Makes This Book So Great, is very emblematic of the way that she approaches the work she loves. Well, that's... I think that distinction makes it very exciting because so often literary criticism seems really impenetrable and, and like you need to have an, um, a master's degree in English lit in order to to actually appreciate the books, but I, I really like the fact that here she's writing as a fan rather than as a critic. Mm -hmm. And our reviewer also really appreciated too and said that she recommends reading the essays at random rather than all the way through so that the books don't just blur together. 
um, Walton is writing about the books that she's read again and again and says that something only worth reading once is pretty much a waste of time. And the, the themes of the essays um, interweave nicely. And for, for readers who aren't familiar with science fiction and fantasy, the book could be a great introduction. And for readers who are immersed in science fiction and fantasy, this seems like a really perfect gift for the post-holiday season. Oh, that sounds like fun. What else you got? So there are two hybrid books, um, hybrid works of nonfiction um, coming out in January too. The first is The Trip to Echo Spring by Olivia Lang, which is coming out from Picador. This was just today shortlisted for the 2013 Costa Biography Award in the UK. If not today, then sometime this month. A <laughs> <laughs> um, reviewer called this a searching biographical meditation, and I met Lang at a Picador lunch a few months ago, and she's she's just lovely. I would listen to her talk about anything. Can you can you tell us what you mean by hybrid books? Because it's not a term I'm familiar with. Well, this book and the next one by Rebecca Mead, they do something interesting, which is blending biographical research and literary criticism and then adding some memoir to it, too. So you, it's difficult to classify, but I think what unites them is, is really beautiful prose and really intense devotion to literature and books and wanting to, to really understand those works and those authors. Here, uh, she's taking, Lang is taking the, a pretty provocative subject. She is a critic and travel writer, but here she's writing about the writing and drinking careers of six American authors. So who, who comes to mind when you say that? Uh, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald, Tennessee Williams, John Berryman, John Cheever, and Raymond Carver. So she takes stock of how their alcoholism affected them personally and the cost to their loved ones, including suicide, wrecked homes, lurid benders, like the effect on their, their own writing careers. And she, in addition to the research she's done, she also incorporates insights from neuroscience and rehab doctrines and talks about her own family's alcoholic history. So I, I think there might be more books coming out like this that, that aren't just one thing or the other, like not straight literary criticism, not straight memoir, but something that's doing both. And I think that this book's great strength is that she looks at the the way um, drink is portrayed in, in their various books and how their struggles like are reflected in their works themselves. I think she talked in her interview with PW about how Tennessee Williams' later plays, you can really see the deterioration of his mind even in the actual um, the diction mm -hmm. of his characters. Hmm. But one thing I just uh, saw in our PW Daily is that um, Lang just won a major award in the UK for her next book, which is The Lonely City Adventures in the Art of Being Alone. It's a cultural study of urban loneliness. So I think it's very inspiring to see a writer who's so versatile, because you wouldn't think that a writer who's writing about authors and alcoholism would then talk about urban loneliness <laughs> as, as her next book. Um, similarly versatile is the New Yorker staff writer Rebecca Mead, who um, has a new book coming out called My Life in Middlemarch. This is her second book. The first was about the wedding industry, but this one is really like a love letter to George Eliot and Middlemarch. I'm writing a blog post on it right now. <laughs> and, ah, right, and, and for just, tomorrow. And just finished it, and the book is really glorious in so many ways. It's It's really elegantly written. Um, it's really insightful, and I, it just feels like 
readers who may not know that much about George Eliot or the Victorian novel and may just know Rebecca Mead from The New Yorker, like I can see anyone really falling in love with the book because the voices of the two women, both Eliot and Mead, are just enchanting in so many ways. And this one is also a hybrid because it's there's a little bit of memoir um, in terms of Mead talking about her personal relationship with Middlemarch as a teenager in early adulthood and middle age. And she's reread the books at different the book at different times in her life and it offers her different wisdom at, at those different points. And it it also blends liter- literary criticism and plenty of biography of George Eliot, who turns out to be this scandalous figure. I feel like that's lost on us when we're English majors. We're just trying to get through the book. But it turns out that George Eliot lived for years and years with a man who was still married to his first wife. And then right after he died, she she married, I think, the the person who managed the family finances, like within a year after her husband wow. died. And he was 20 years younger. So... Mm. She led a very colorful, unorthodox life, and certainly for former English majors, the book is like reliving your college days, um, except that in this, this book is one that you can understand, and you're not required to take an exam on it. It's just for pure pleasure. So the, the, I feel like the theme here is really sort of literary criticism and literary biography for the lay reader, the idea of making it more accessible, making these lives more accessible, making these works more accessible. I think certainly the, the books that would most appeal to, to our readers would be, would be books that aren't, aren't necessarily taking a scholarly bent, but getting you excited about literature just for its own sake. You're not necessarily contributing like the new definitive interpretation of of Middlemarch or or any other novel, but but just getting people invested again in reading. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, the the other book I wanted to tell you about is Why I Read by Wendy Lesser, which is coming out from FSG. She's going to be on your show next week. She I is think. indeed. That's right. Um, Lesser is a critic and editor, and she's the author of Music for Silenced Voices, Shostakovich and his Fifteen String Quartets. Um, and she's the founder of the literary journal, The Three Penny Review. So this one is interesting because it's like a memoir of reading, but it also has pretty detailed discussions about craft. She's writing about authors, including Dostoevsky, Henry James, and many others. But she also talks about, besides novels, she talks about plays, poems, and essays. I can imagine this being a great present for budding writers, for book lovers. You certainly would end up with a very detailed list to add to your own to-be-read pile. And she, and it's also a way to see how someone who's, I'm sure, read thousands and thousands of um, submissions over the years for her journal um, talks about the pros and cons of the way character and plot work together, novelty, grandeur, and intimacy. Um, it's It sounds like a, a book that's pretty unusual, because I, I, I haven't seen that many memoirs of reading from the time that I've been covering this category. I want to say Francine Prose did one a few years ago, but it, that that's pretty much all I can think of off the top of my head. And that and that was about her. I think it was about it was herself. reading as a novelist. I yeah, think. Her, her sort of personal canon too, in some ways. So th- this sounds really interesting. Well, it, this is this is the obviously very erudite book version of something that's been happening on Facebook lately with the ten books that have most touched you and. Um, you're, you're seeing such interesting lists, I think, from especially in 
the, the crowd of my social media friends, so many of them are writers and editors, and suddenly I have like 200 books that I need to add to my list. But I certainly okay. love being able to peek at the library of, of someone like Wendy Lesser and, and really find out what, what makes her final cut. Right, and uh, Sarah Nelson had a book also. She's a former uh, public, uh, editor-in-chief of PW. So many books, so little time. And also I remember Will Schwalbe, who is a uh, book editor uh, and then founder of Cookster.com, and he just had a book out last year uh, about uh, books that he read uh, with his uh, dying mom. And uh, so there's been, there's been a couple of those. It's, it's nice to see. And, and you're right, there's a lot on Facebook about that. You know, people are sharing these books um, more in the last couple of weeks than I've seen also, well, probably in time for the holidays. It just proves everyone loves lists. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and they, they, love, they love having a book that's been vouched for mm -hmm. by someone else. I think, especially these days, people just aren't as willing to to just devote the time to say like I'm going to read a middle march for the first time um and it's it's great to see authors like Rebecca Mead advocating for that right. and I I think for for my reviewer she actually read middle march for the first time in her um late 60s and she said that it changed her life and she she read it in order to review Rebecca Mead's book and said it was just such a, a glorious experience hmm. Fascinating. Right. All right. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much. It's always really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I will be back in a few months talking about true crime. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to that. Excellent. Excellent. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show, 